0: we're right in the middle of a series called Jesus People, and this is the sixth episode. The sixth episode of Jesus People. So my name is Rick. I'm author of the Jesus Centered Daily, Daily Devotional, released in October. You've heard me talk about this quite a bit. Um, and last episode I mentioned, great post-Easter gift for a friend or family member. So is, by the way, the Jesus Centered Bible. I'm the general editor of that major, massive project. Many of you already have a Jesus-centered Bible, but maybe you haven't thought yet, um, you know, I love this Bible so much, I bet I have a friend or a family member who would really be drawn into a regular habit of reading the Bible because of the special features in this Bible that um, no matter where you're reading, creatively point you to Jesus. So uh, we'll put a link to both the Jesus-Centered Daily and the Jesus-Centered Bible on our podcast episode page, and, and that is found at Jesus.com. You'll just look for season six, episode 14. So here in this Jesus People series, we're exploring the heart of Jesus through the lens of his friends and enemies, and even people that he barely had contact with. Uh, and that's because even just a bare contact with Jesus could be life-changing, I'm going to start out every episode in this series with what Dr. Peter Kreeft, the Boston University professor and C.S. Lewis scholar says about what it's like to actually meet Jesus. Here's what he says. Christ changed every human being he ever met. If anyone claims to have met him without being changed, he's not met him at all. When you touch him, you touch lightning. And in this episode, we're going to discover that that lightning metaphor is actually true. We're going to explore the heart of Jesus through the lens of a woman who never actually meets Jesus, (laughs) at least not that we know of. Nevertheless, she plays a significant role in history because of Jesus's encounter with her. Let's just call her for the time being the mystery widow. So we'll get back to the mystery widow in just a second. But a little rabbit trail that will help set the stage here. We are um, whole people, right? We have a work, we have work and a job and a, and responsibilities and um, people counting on us for things and challenges and stresses. And these are all over the all over the page, aren't they? We live in this swirl of responsibilities and opportunities and challenges and successes and failures. And as we move through this kind of swirl of activity in our life, we have to have gauges for ourselves. And usually, a lot of times they're internal gauges that give us feedback about whether we're doing okay or not, right? Whether that's at your work or at home or in your marriage or with your friends, we have a set of internal gauges that give us feedback about whether essentially we're being successful or not in all of these arenas. And some of those gauges um, that we adopt are actually quite surface. And when you dig a little deeper into them, they're false. So I love uh, a book called Death by Suburb by author Dave Getz. I got to know uh, Dave after the book came out. He, um, uh, we, we had him out to do a, a workshop at Group Publishing, where I worked for uh, 30 years. And through that experience, I got to know Dave a little bit. And his book, Death by Suburb, was an exploration of some of the challenges of living a, a committed, intimate life with Jesus when you live a suburban life with all of the strange temptations and pressures and challenges that that represents. I'd never heard anyone talk about the great challenges of suburban living, because for most, for, for most people in the culture, suburban living translates to middle-class, upper-middle-class upper ways of life and what kind of problems could be there. <laughs> well, Dave does a great job of, of sort of surfacing and unmasking all of the challenges uh, that are dumped into our lap if you live the suburban life. And one of the, the biggest challenges is something that he called um, an addiction to immortality symbols in suburban living. Immortality symbols. Now, these are markers that people use to give themselves feedback that they're really doing quite well, actually. Um, but immortality symbols, Dave Getz says in his book, are usually the false metrics that we embrace sort of on, like I said before, on the surface of our life to convince ourselves that who we are and what we're doing is good. These immortality symbols are things we over-invest in. Um, and in our culture, for instance, they're often translated into uh, checking the boxes with our kids. So in suburban life, it's often uh, revolves around uh, family life and parenting. And We have a set of check boxes that we might not even be aware of, uh, that we've embraced, uh, relative to our kids that parents, uh, sort of play competitively with, (laughs) um, there's this sort of latent pressure to check all those boxes, uh. For instance, um, one of the primary check boxes in suburban family living, and you, you can probably relate if this, is, if this describes you, is when your kids start to get older into high school and they start thinking about college, uh, there's a kind of latent competition around what school your kids go to, um, how many school visits you've made to make your determination about where your, your child is going to go to school, what sort of scholarships, honors, um, uh, financial support is offered, how prestigious the school is. Um, curiously, here in my context in Colorado, the many of the parents in my suburban context, they look down on their kids staying in state for school, like there's some kind of toxicity or... Um, shame even in uh, a student who decides to stay and go to a public university in your own state. Uh, it's, it's more prestigious, I guess you could say, if, you're, if your kid wants to go out of state to some school. It's also, by the way, almost universally more um, expensive to do that. And maybe that's why it's an immortality symbol. It's a, it's a subtle way of saying, we're doing pretty well over here. My kids are doing pretty well because they get to go out of state to school. They, they got accepted at blank and blank and blank schools. And no, uh, yeah, we know it's more expensive, but that's where they're going. There's that kind of latent undercurrent. and um, And so as it turns out, my daughter, Emma, is a senior in high school, and she's headed to college in the fall. And so when my wife and I are walking the neighborhood, walking our dog in the neighborhood, we have this kind of circle path around our neighborhood. It's a two-mile path, and when we're walking the neighborhood, we run into people, and they ask us, hey, where is Emma going to college? And I immediately feel sort of um, a heightened sense of tension in myself because I hate this game that parents play over these immortality symbols. I just hate it. I hate it that my daughter gets defined by uh, what, what school she's going to, and I don't really care about the prestige of any of this stuff. Um, And obviously that's not what life is really all about. And it's actually the research shows that this kind of underlying immortality symbol belief about where your kids go to college. If you track it back, it's a belief that parents have that if uh, if you get into the right school, then you'll get the right career, meet the right people, and then you'll be happy in life. And that's actually not true. That's not what brings happiness. The research shows happiness comes when you find the, the thing that you are called to do in life and you fully invest yourself in that, whatever it is. Uh, the research shows that's what brings the most satisfaction in life, no matter where you go to school, uh, no matter how prestigious the school is and who you meet when you're there. So I'm always a little tense, tense walking the neighborhood when people ask me about where Emma is choosing to go to college. And I choose my words carefully. As it turns out, Emma is going out of state to college. So that makes it even more difficult for me because I hate that standard. Uh, my older daughter Lucy went to an in-state public school and uh, you know that was where she was supposed to be. And out of state is where my daughter Emma is supposed to be, it's clear. It's as we've discerned our way through these choices with her. It's clear where she was meant to go, but I resist talking that much with neighbors about this because I don't want to fit into their categories. And then there's this sort of latent pressure to go on and tell more of the story of how this happened and how how she's able to go to this school. Um, uh, I just feel kind of a this pressure of the false immortality symbol overshadowing these conversations. So. So um, it's, it's interesting at this time when we're releasing this episode, um, we're about oh, four or five months away from my daughter, Emma, leaving, and we have all kinds of emotions inside, but, but we don't have any that are about um, what she's about to do and how that reflects on us as people. And there's none of that in us. So I was listening to um, a sermon by Tim Keller, the... Well-known pastor in New York City, um, um, trying to remember the name of his church. It's uh, uh, oh, it's Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City. And Tim Keller is the longtime uh, pastor there. And now we just heard the sad news. You know, I heard the sad news in the last month that uh, Tim Keller has terminal cancer, which is just devastating to hear. Um, and so my wife and I have been going back and, and going online to listen to some of his sermons off and on over the last few months, because he's just so brilliant. Um, and I, I love his way of seeing the Bible, the story of the Bible, um, and uh, who Jesus is and, and what our life with Jesus is all about. I, I love how Tim Keller looks at all that. So we a friend of ours recommended one of his sermons called Justice and Mercy, and so my wife and I watched this over the weekend and, and, uh, it was really a sermon about one of the pillars of Redeemer Presbyterian there in New York city. He was doing a series on all of the kind of central beliefs of the church. And this was one of them, justice and mercy. And in the middle of this sermon, he suggested something that I thought was profound and counterintuitive and, um, uh, makes a difference, not just in the arena of justice and mercy, but in all of our life. So he said that, um, that for people who are trying to um, live out of God's uh, clear mandate to take care of the widows and the orphans and the refugees, to to pay attention to the marginalized, to to come alongside and bind up the wounds and meet the needs of those who have been disadvantaged in the culture in one way or another. And that Tim Keller makes the point that God not only advocates for this, he identifies with those people on the margins and thinks that it's of primary importance that we live this out in our life. And what Tim Keller was saying is that often we, we treat that message as sort of a shame-based or guilt-based or duty-based message that I should be doing more to help those who are poor and disadvantaged. I should be. And what he was pointing out was an obvious truth that we don't often often think about. If you have that kind of motivation, it's not likely to stay very long. You're not likely to persist in your care and concern for the marginalized in our culture if it's coming from a place of duty. He said uh, the only way forward to develop a passion like that is to encounter the, the beauty In that pursuit to pursue beauty, he says, to taste and see what is really good fills up our emptiness with something real and satisfying. It's a solid meal. And when you feed on beauty, it uh, has the impact of continuing to motivate you in the direction you're going. So his recommendation is to understand the beauty in the heart of God and why he cares so much about the marginalized and when we've uh, embraced the why behind God's care, then and see the beauty behind um, reaching out to those who are marginalized, that is its own reward. And so, uh, he's he's he at the end of his sermon, uh, this is the part that I love the best. You won't be surprised by this. Um, he he says that if you're looking for uh, something purely beautiful, as your primary meal in life, he said, you should look no farther than Jesus. <laughs> if you taste and see the goodness in the heart of Jesus, that is the one meal that will truly fill you. I, I love that he ended that way. Um, and so the, this idea that tasting and seeing the beauty of Jesus is the only truly fulfilling meal in our life, um, if you translate this a little bit into the rest of our life, If we pay attention to the things that Jesus finds beautiful, what might we learn about his heart and how might that infect our own heart? You know, if you were to scroll through the photos on your phone right now, I mean, if you're not driving right now, you could actually do this, pick up your phone and scroll through the photos on your phone um, until you find a photo that represents something beautiful in your life. If you were to do that, if just scrolling through your phone to see if what might represent beauty in your life, on my phone, I'm just scrolling through here, um, There's on my phone is a picture from a few days ago of my two daughters, Lucy and Emma, and they uh, took a road trip uh, during spring break, just the two of them. My younger daughter, Emma, planned a four-day road trip from Denver to the Grand Canyon and back for just the two of them. Now, my older daughter, Lucy, is at in in the last part of her uh, college experience and she's pre-med and her life is hectic. She has very little space for anything, really. She's just working all the time. So she wasn't even able to help plan this trip. And that created some tension between the two of them because all of that fell on my younger daughter. And so leading up to this trip, there was some question as to whether they were even going to go on the trip because they were trying to negotiate their way around um, whether or not my older daughter really wanted to go. Uh, that, was the, that was the central issue. So we weren't sure if they were really going to follow through, but they in the end they did. And they had four amazing days together. It was so needed for the two of them to reconnect. And so here on my phone, I have this picture of the two of them on the second day of their trip. And it's the two of them just smiling ear to ear at this uh, hotel or motel that they were staying at. Um, They're sitting next to where the pool is um, in, I think it was in Utah. And um, underneath the caption, it's uh, celebrating International Siblings Day. And they're both smiling. And it just pierced my heart to see them together because they've always been so close. And then there was some tension around this trip. And now they've reconnected. And what this uh, picture reminds me of is the, is the treasure of my relationship with my two daughters and the relationship they have together. That is a huge treasure in my life. In, in my family going up, growing up and in my, in my wife Bev's family growing up, there wasn't a lot of closeness, relational closeness amongst the siblings. And so for me to see my two daughters so close and so uh, considering each other their best friends is, is a powerful piercing beauty in my life. It's a reminder of what life in the kingdom of God is like, where two people mutually sacrifice for each other and, and see the best in the beauty in each other. That's what that photo reminds me of. So the, the idea that, that I would slow down and pay attention to what's beautiful in my life and then uh, remember How that beauty is really connected in the end to the kingdom of God and a value that Jesus champions, which is relational intimacy and mutual dependence and unconditional love, all of these things he champions, it all ties back to something beautiful that Jesus first modeled or or spoke about. And and, uh, that means that if we, again, just slow down a little bit and pay better attention to the things that Jesus notices that are beautiful, we can be led back to the truth about the kingdom of God and about the truth about his heart. So I want to share a story that I included in the Jesus Centered daily in one of my daily devotionals. It's a story that it's a little story that had a big impact on me. So I'm going to read the story exactly the way I wrote it in the, in the devotional. I'll read it, but then I'll add a little bit of detail to it as well. So here we go. Here here we're going to start. In the middle of a three-day sojourn in the wilderness, I'm traipsing up a snowy mountain road. In my periphery, I notice something I would have missed had I been driving. First one, then three or four, then dozens of fresh rose petals scattered along the shoulder. For a quarter mile, I'm like Dorothy on the yellow brick road, following a petal path that leads home. This haphazard wallflower beauty enunciates the glory of God. When we live our lives determined to slow down and pay attention to beauty, we give our souls the living water they crave. A frenzied pace obliterates the details that perch on our periphery, and beauty is always in the details. Jesus models a drink-deep lifestyle. We see it whenever we notice what he notices. Now, this trip that I'm mentioning here in, my, in this daily devotional was when I was writing one of my books. It's a, it was uh, to a Trappist monastery high up in the mountains of Colorado in a lonely place where the monks in this Trappist monastery own the entire valley that they're, where their monastery sits. So it's a completely quiet valley with these huge peaks surrounding it in the back of the but behind the monastery. And they have a retreat center and about eight hermitages that are little stone, stone cottages that you can rent for two or three or four nights. And um, I often write the books that I write in stretches spent at this monastery because it's completely quiet. There's no Wi-Fi, no cell service, no nothing. And it's just the most beautiful place I've ever been. And so I've had many, many walks <laughs> up, up a snowy mountain road. At, at this place called St. Benedict's. Um, and uh, it's, it's interesting because when you go somewhere and you walk instead of drive, you notice things you, you, would, you always miss um, when you're driving. And, and that's how I noticed these, these dozens and dozens of fresh rose petals scattered along the shoulder for probably a quarter mile. So somebody at some time thought it would be an act of beauty to just scatter these rose petals along the way. And knowing that most people would never even notice them because they're on the side of the road. But because I, my senses were heightened to the beauty of Jesus during this time, I was also, they were also heightened to the beauty around me. And I saw these rose petals and it just pierced me. So um, the, the idea that we would slow down and pay attention to beauty is, is not just a value. It is living the way Jesus lived. This is what Jesus did, like breathing. Noticing what Jesus notices is simply vital in our relationship with him. It changes everything. What does Jesus find beautiful, and why does he? Perhaps the best example of noticing beauty, this kind of loops back to who we're going to take a, a look at today. The best example of noticing beauty is when he, noti- when he notices the mystery widow in Mark chapter 12. So here's just a little bit of context, and I'll read you this little... Little encounter. The context is that uh, Jesus has already entered Jerusalem on his way to the cross. It's Palm Sunday. Um, he he knows in the week to come he's on his way to a kangaroo court where he's going to be falsely accused and then condemned to death and then crucified. Um, and as he's uh, uh, in Jerusalem, he enters and re-enters Jerusalem with his disciples. They're actually staying outside of Jerusalem, but. Each day that they're there, they enter Jerusalem. And one day he enters Jerusalem and is in the temple area. And he's approached by some religious leaders who feel fundamentally threatened by him. And therefore, there's a lot of posturing and confrontation and subterfuge going on. Here's, here's what it says um, in verse uh, 27 and 28 of Mark 12. It gives you a little bit of an idea of what was going on. Again, they entered Jerusalem. As Jesus was walking through the temple area, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders came up to him and they demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right to do them? Now you get the kind of uh, situation that Jesus was in here. He's essentially having a verbal sword fight um, through most of this chapter with the religious leaders. And when he's not doing that, he's teaching his disciples and anyone else who's wandering through the temple grounds who wants to listen at the same time. Um, and think about this though. Jesus knows what his disciples and the religious leaders don't yet realize that before the week is out, he's going to be tortured and executed and feel forsaken by his father. Think about what where his mind would be at. Think about where your mind would be at. It's a sort of a toxic mix mix of of existential threats where he's getting pursued and confronted by these hypocritical religious leaders. And the the dark shadow of fear hanging over him as he knows where he's headed. And then into the midst of this, he sees a lonely, nondescript woman who slips past the parade of all these rich posers to drop two pennies into the offering bucket in the middle of um, the pomp and circumstance of these religious leaders and rich people who are making a big show about how much they're putting into the pot into the temple collection. So here's, this, here's, here's the, a few sentences about this encounter, starting in verse 41 of Mark 12. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins, worth only a few cents. Notice here, Jesus. what does Jesus notice? Notice what he notices. Why would he notice the poor widow in the first place? Why? Ask yourself, what what makes it onto the radar for Jesus? Not the ostentatious overgiving of the rich people who are throwing in large amounts, but this nondescript woman, the poorest of the poor, who only offered a few cents. And so Continuing in verse 43, he calls his disciples to him. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All she had to live on. There's this brief encounter. Again, as far as we know, the widow never even knows that Jesus has noticed her. Do you ever go through life feeling like, um, if you really were honest about it, feeling unnoticed by Jesus? Like because of your life circumstances, it doesn't feel like he's even paying attention. Maybe that's what this poor woman felt. She didn't know that Jesus was paying attention to her. And not just paying attention to her, appreciating her, honoring her, He was moved by her. He wanted his disciples to see this woman also, because what she was doing was something so important, so beautiful, he needed to point it out to them. And so he tells them, truly, this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. What is the more she gave? It's all she had to live on. So the question here is, well, what does Jesus find beautiful? in this in this observation of this woman and why does he find it beautiful well let's think about this for a second what does jesus find beautiful about her she's a not trying to draw attention to herself why because she knows what she's offering doesn't look like much to those around her in the culture in fact it looks like nothing to those around her in the culture she's not trying to parade The grandiose gift that she's giving, she knows that in her world, she's a nothing. She's an inconsequential person, especially surrounded by all these rich and ostentatious people. She feels that she's a nothing. But a lot of people who feel unnoticed and a nothing and live on the margins, um, they don't even make the effort to in public offer whatever it is they have. Think about the courage this woman had. All she has is two pennies. That's all she has in the world. She knows it's not going to be noticed or considered, maybe even scoffed at by those who are offering much more. And yet she offers it anyway in a public way. She's making a statement. She's saying, I don't care what the rest of the world sees. I only care what God sees. Oh, I think this is what draws Jesus most to her. She only cares primarily about pleasing God and giving out of her great need. She knows that though the surrounding culture won't recognize it, she'll never be honored for it. She knows in secret that her relationship with God and that intimacy and his delight and pleasure in her is what really matters in her life. She wants to give even if what she has to give is not considered valuable by anyone in the culture. It, she knows it is valuable to me. It's all I have. Um, this, this mystery widow is important in my life as well. Um, every time I'm about to lead a group of people, and I do this frequently, every at least once a week, usually three times a week, I'm leading a group of people in something. And I'm very, very conscious conscious of my dependence on Jesus and how little I really have to offer in the end. Um, that, this is really true. I'm not just posturing here. It's true that I always feel I have so little really to offer. Um, and so my prayer always before I enter in is, goes always back to this woman. And I always say something to Jesus like, Jesus, all I have are two pennies. And I know it. I know that's all I have. But you can have them. I'm going to give you fully what I have, even if it's two pennies, even if everyone else thinks, well, that was only just two pennies. It doesn't matter to me because it's all I have and I give it to you. This sort of recalibrates me whenever I'm going in to lead someone in something. And it reminds me of who I'm dependent on. And that even though I know all I have to give is two pennies, if I give all that I have, he's greatly pleased and delighted by that. In fact, that, that is, the, I think, at the core of worship. When you give something to him, not so that others can see it, not even so that you can write it off on your taxes, but because you want to, that you can't help but give everything you have because you're motivated by his heart seeing the goodness in his heart, tasting the goodness in who he is, you're deeply motivated to give all you have. And that's what Jesus, I think, sees in this poor widow. He, he again says that the rich people give out of their wealth, but she gives out of her poverty. She puts in everything she has to live on. Giving out of your poverty, giving out of your brokenness, You know, I've been a leader in organizations for the last 30 years, first at Group and now at Vibrant Faith, and um, when you're leading other people, um, you're conscious of um, what you do and don't have as a leader, and I was talking to a, a friend of mine who's also been a leader for a long time, and I just casually said to him, I think there's, for leaders, we have two choices. We either give out of our brokenness or we give out of our arrogance, And I so desperately simply want to give out of my brokenness and be honest about it, because then I'm living in the spirit of this mystery widow who gave out of her poverty and her brokenness. But what she gave was everything. And I think that's the last thing I want to mention here. What draws Jesus always is when we give everything, not because we're supposed to, because it's our duty or because we're chasing an immortality symbol. None of that. When we give everything because we want to, we're motivated to. In fact, we can't stop ourselves. We're so caught up with the heart of Jesus because we've slowed down to pay attention to his heart that our response is natural and organic. We don't even think about it. Well, of course, I want to give my two pennies. It's all I have. And I want to give you all, all that I have. This is the heart that Jesus sees in the widow, and he's also, I think, seeing the reflection of his own heart, because Jesus always gives everything. There is never a moment when he's not giving everything he has to the person in front of him, no matter who it is. All he's doing is trying, whether it's confronting or forgiving or honoring or delighting, he's always giving everything he has to whoever that is in front of him. So when he sees someone else giving everything they have, no matter who sees it, he, he sees a heart that belongs in the kingdom of God. He sees, he sees beauty. As we wrap up here, um, close your eyes and just explore the beauty of your fingers by touch. Now, don't do this if you're driving, obviously, but Uh, reach out your fingers and see what you can touch with your eyes closed, touch around. I'm just touching around my, my desk right now as I'm recording this and I, and I touch the cord to my headphones and it's a smooth um, kind of uh, soft cord. And the beauty of that soft cord reminds me that that cord leads up to those earpieces, which delivers this beautiful music that I listen to through those headphones. You all know that if you've been listening for a long time to this podcast, I love jazz music, not, not, uh, not the, the kind of smooth jazz stuff. I like the classic jazz. Uh, um, and I, I just love it. And, and so that, that's a source of great beauty in my life. And so touching the cord to my headphones reminds me of the beauty of music and how god created us to enjoy the beauty of music so when we slow down in our life to consider and enjoy what is beautiful around us the next slow down step is well wh- why is it beautiful why is that thing beautiful if you keep asking that why question why do i why do i uh, experience this thing as be- beautiful if you keep asking that question It will lead you like that cord leads back to the, to my headphones. It will lead you back to the kingdom of God, which is dominated by the heart of Jesus. That's where it will lead you pay attention to what Jesus considers beautiful. That is a life practice that will draw you into intimacy of his heart and help you to taste and see the beauty all around you. Let's just close in prayer, a prayer for beauty. This is the prayer that I list in the daily devotional that, um, on which this story appears. So here's the closing prayer. Let's just quiet yourself. Yes. Jesus, right now I'm slowing down to appreciate your details. Jesus, I'm going to slow down to appreciate your details. I want to know you. All right, gang. Thanks again for listening. Uh, you can go to Jesus.com and look for Season 6, Episode 14 for links to things I've talked about today. And make sure that um, that if you want to keep getting every, every episode of this podcast, subscribe on Google Play or iTunes and you won't miss any of them. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from ricklawrence.com. Rick and I'll see you again next week.